Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is David Breifman, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at the Jewish Education Project. David completed his PhD in Education and Jewish Studies at NYU, where he focused on Jewish adolescent identity development and experiential Jewish education. He's also a graduate of the Wexner Graduate Fellowship Program. Prior to moving to New York, David worked in formal and informal Jewish educational institutions in Australia, Israel, and North America. David was the primary author of the 2016 research report titled Generation Now, Understanding and Engaging Jewish Teens Today. David's current work focuses on bringing innovative strategies and creative thinking to Jewish education. I wanted to bring David on the program because we haven't really talked much about Jewish education, although we've touched on it a bit. And this is obviously a huge focus of a lot of our lives, whether professionally or personally. And I think there's a lot of interesting ways that the field is moving that I'm very excited to talk with David about. So welcome to the program, David. Hi, it's great to be here. And as someone who's been listening to the podcast for many months now, it's great to be featured here with all of your wonderful guests. So we'll start as we always do with your own personal story. We got a little bit of it from your bio, but I'd love to hear how you got into this work, into this position. Well, as you can probably tell, I'm not from America originally. I was born and raised in Australia, where I was fortunate to be the recipient of a very strong Jewish education, both in Jewish day schools, but also significantly in a Jewish youth movement. And upon completion of high school, I was on a year course in Israel, and I was a typical 18-year-old Australian kid, I guess, doing his first year in Israel. And at a certain point of the program, the director of the program basically said to me in that colloquial or proverbial tap on the shoulder, so you want to continue being an Australian larrikin, I guess is the best way of putting it? (laughs) Or do you want to go into Jewish education? Because I actually think that you've got what it takes to be a Jewish educator. And for somebody who had considered various professions and hadn't decided upon any it was really an interesting thing for me to consider that something that I've always enjoyed being a part of as a kid could now actually be something that I pursued as a professional pathway. And so I went back to college and studied education, majoring in Jewish studies at university level, went on to teach and be the director of informal education in a high school, and then moved to Sydney where I became a Hillel director and also running birthright programs. At a certain point in that orientation, I was really enjoying life in Sydney, but I, someone says to me, what's going to come next for you? And I said, well, I'm not really sure. Let's go and try out what it's like to live in the big, bad Jewish community of the United States. <laughs> You've got to imagine here that like there was nothing Australian Jews thought they could learn from American Jews at that stage. Like right. here's this country with this huge assimilation rate and intermarriage. So what are you possibly going to go and do there? And I said, well, let me go there for two years and I'll learn what I can from that community and then bring it back to Australia and see what happens. Well, what happened was life and life gets in the way of any great plans. And I basically lived for two years working in St. Louis of all places, which was a great community, a great breeding ground. I had a great boss and a really interesting job that basically said, we're going to show you the ropes of American Jewish community while you're here. I stayed there for two years. And during that time, someone basically said to me, have you heard about this program at NYU? 
I said I had, and there's no way I could afford it. Well, in the same sentence, they also said, have you heard about this thing called the Wexner Graduate Fellowship mm-hmm. Program? And at that point, life began to fall into some sort of order where I said, hang on a second, you mean the community would value me enough to send me to university to get this degree and then work for them afterwards? I said, now I've got a plan in place. And that's where the journey really began. The folks at NYU never really got informal or experiential Jewish education. So I modified my work to adolescent Jewish education and then looked at Jewish kids in summer camps and youth groups and day schools as part of my work. I loved my research and upon completing it, the discussion came. Now, would you like to put your research into action? To which I said, hang on a second. It's not every chance where that actually happens. And so I became the teen director That was what was then the Board of Jewish Education. What was your graduate research on? It was an ethnographic study of Jewish teenagers. And I was really looking at the role of the peer group, the role that friendship circles have in Mm. determining how Jewish kids form and develop their identity. So I got to live at summer camp for a couple of summers and hang out with a youth movement for a year and a half and go to a day school and just study and talk to and run focus groups with teenagers and see what they really thought of the world and their Jewish experiences. It was a lot of fun. The research was a highlight of my whole graduate experience. And then the job came at the Board of Jewish Education and it was exciting to actually put into place a program to try and engage Jewish teens today. You know, the biggest dilemma facing the community was what's happening to all these kids after their bar and bat mitzvah? Why are they dropping out of Jewish life? And this job was basically there to empower me with the support of UJA Federation of New York at the time to try and engage this audience. And I took on the challenge. And Can you now, solve the problem? No, I'm just <laughs> I, I, you know what? It's an interesting question that I haven't solved the problem but we've reframed the discussion. And now after working in this field of Jewish teen engagement for so long and now overseeing a whole team doing this work, we're no longer asking the question about what it's like to retain kids after this milestone event in their life. We're asking completely different questions about what's the Jewish community putting out there of value to adolescents as they go through life what's Jewish that we can contribute to their lives to help them succeed as human beings. It's a completely different framing that the problem is not these kids that are magically disappearing, but the community, which is not offering enough meaning. And now we're really working hard at developing more meaning for those teens. So I wouldn't say that the problem is solved, but the reframing of the question has meant much more successful than we were a decade ago. That's great. So you were at the Jewish board. Well, we're at the board of Jewish education. So let me say a couple of sentences about that because it's sort of interesting and relevant to many of the discussions you have been having with your guests. So a hundred years ago, the Board of Jewish Education was established in New York. And a hundred years later, this organization is probably as successful or more successful than it's ever been before. So obviously it's gone through a change in name, but with the change of name also became a change in mission and a change in values and a change in orientation Mm -hmm. to become the Jewish Education Project. We realized after a while that people weren't coming to us for curriculum and for posters and for the laminating machine. We were going out of business fast. And we changed our orientation to providing leadership for Jewish educators to change their mission and visions to meet the realities of the world today. And we've been really successful. We've had good support from the Federation in New York, which is ongoing and really makes our work possible. But we're now also in the stage of our development where other foundations and philanthropists are also coming to us saying, spread the word further and make sure your work is impacting more and more people beyond New York as well. In today's age, you know, ideas don't remain localized. So we're able now to spread and to do work around the country and dare I say internationally when those opportunities arise as well. So how many years have you collectively now been in this organization? So now it's about eight years. I measure the time based on the birth of my first child. (laughs) 
but I haven't had the same job title for more than two or three years in that time, which is interesting. Interesting for me personally and professionally. I'm a very itchy person by nature. I like coming up with new ideas. I like empowering other people to implement those ideas with me. And I've grown from what was then the head of the team department at the organization to the chief learning officer. Now I'm the chief innovation officer. And all those words have slightly different meanings, but it means that I'm just invested in the agency as a whole in trying to bring change to Jewish education in the primary areas in which we work, which are Jewish day schools, Jewish congregations, what was known once as Hebrew schools, in teen engagement and in early childhood and family engagement. And those four areas are the core areas in which we work. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of wonderful mentors that have kind of played a real big vital role in your path to where you are now, which is great. I think mentors always play a role and I think everyone's story is they come through, but someone had to say to you, right? Hey, there's this great program or hey, why don't you go do this? It sounds like there were a lot of people in your corner throughout your path. So when you take the time to reflect on all of those people that have had an impact on getting you to where you are, it's quite humbling to think about. I remember my fourth grade Jewish studies teacher and you know I remember what he used to teach me in those classes, which would be like a byline in my own biography had I not ran into him like 25 years later. And if you can imagine what it's like to go and see your fourth grade teacher, right. then go and teach. And I went to observe him teach in another school. So he taught me in Melbourne, Australia. And then I went up to Westchester to see him teach a class just this last year. And it was sort of like a remarkable, like bringing together of like my life watching this person. And I don't know if you really remembered who I was as a fourth grade kid, but you know, in terms of closing a circle on my own journey, it was quite a wonderful opportunity to see that take place. Great. So take us a little bit into the work of the organization and specifically what it is that your role is in moving things forward. The organization now, I think, rests on the core principle that the world has changed at a really, really dramatic rate and that if Jewish education is to remain relevant and vibrant, that it needs to update accordingly. And the truth is that most of the mainstream institutions that were developed for Jewish education were built decades ago. So the real challenge I put forward is how do we create an infrastructure that's able to reach the greatest number of people to satisfy their Jewish needs of learning and education today? Now, I had the choice in my career whether I could join what is commonly known as a startup organization and try from a small niche level to fill one of those needs. But I chose that for me to have the scale or the impact that I wanted to, that I wanted to join what's traditionally known as a legacy institution. I'm 100 years old, I think by anyone's definition is a legacy. Mm -hmm. But I went in there with the belief that these two pieces of the Jewish puzzle were not dichotomous. And that part of my role was how could I bring some of those startup organizations or at least the thinking from those startup organizations into mainstream Jewish education? Really, scale and impact are really, really important to me. The question that I'm continually returning to myself, and this is where I stand on this, is what's the greatest impact that I can have on Jewish education and by extension the Jewish people? through the roles that I've got in this world. And that's what our organization tries to do. So we've identified educational leaders as our primary target audience. They're the people in systems that can bring about change. Now, it doesn't have to be just the principal or just the education director. For us, an educational leader is anyone in a system who can bring about change. So the first thing is they've got to want to change. And the second thing is they've got to have the capacity to do so. And we try and build up their capacity to bring about change. I do want to emphasize, it's pretty important to say that 
when you come around and say that we want to bring about change or innovation or transformation, whatever it is, that's not necessarily, in fact, most of the time, it's not a slight or a negative stance on what's currently been happening. It's really from our point of view saying that everything that's happened before us is really great and profound and really important. It's just the world has changed really, really dramatically and really quickly. And that we need to build on the success of the past in order to establish a vibrant Jewish future. One of the throwaway lines that I use is basically something along the lines of the Jewish community of tomorrow cannot, will not, and should not look like the Jewish community of today. And it's become a bit of a cliche, but it's like at the rate of change, and it's not just about technology, but technology is obviously leading part of this way as well. We have to adapt. Our teachers need to be trained differently. Our students are learning differently. We know all of this. So our organization is really trying to push the envelope on what Jewish education could look like moving forward. Well, it looks like you've done that as an example with your own organization, right? Being able to rebrand and shift the way you're doing your work. And as we've definitely explored on this program, change is not easy. And unless you have the leadership that's excited and willing and putting in the time and not taking the change as a personal reflection of, you know, your poor work, but that as just you said, you know, things are different and we need to kind of change and move with that. And so it's definitely a testament for a legacy organization to successfully be able to make that shift and then be able to go to, you know, smaller institutions and say, you can do this too. (laughs) You know, look what we've been able to accomplish. I mean, you mentioned a few really important points. And one of the first things that we needed to do as an organization was bring on new leadership. And we did that straight away. Bob Sherman's been the CEO of the Jewish Education Project throughout this transition uh, time. The second thing we did is, and this took us a bit longer to work out, is that we couldn't just shout out innovation, 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 or change, change, change. We did that for a while. And only now upon reflection do I realize that we had limited success there. What we actually needed to offer was a real purpose or a real vision. Mm -hmm. And when people could begin to see that we weren't just repackaging the Board of Jewish Education as the Jewish Education Project, but there was actually something different taking place, that we were actually aiming for a different type of Jewish education, then it all began to make sense. And lately, we've become even more articulate in this. You know, in a nutshell, what we're basically saying is that primarily Jewish education was developed in order to make Jews more Jewish or to make the Jewish community stronger or more successful or greater in numbers. We've basically said all of those things are really, really particular and tribal to the Jewish community. But you know what? In today's day and age, that's not enough. And what we've actually said, to meet where Jews are today and to offer what we believe is valuable in Jewish community, that we need to offer a Jewishness or a Judaism or a Jewish knowledge or Jewish wisdom or Jewish values or Jewish heritage, whatever that Jewish might be, that can help Jews succeed as human beings and in the world today as Jews. And that's a very different outcome. And when you start saying that for Judaism to be valuable, it needs to help you be successful in life or happy or to use the positive psychology jargon of flourishing and thriving, then it's a very different mission. Now, as soon as we repackaged our whole mission, people actually got what innovation was really about, that it wasn't innovation for innovation's sake, but actually the end game was something very different. And that's now a mantra of the agency as a whole, that we really, really believe that people should be Jewish, not just for Jewish sake, but because they can actually be happier, better versions of themselves with that Jewish influence in their lives. And a lot can happen from a very simple kind of mind shift like that, right? That's not very hard to think about, right? Instead of saying, you know, Judaism should continue and we need to do everything we can to make that happen to 
we believe strongly in the values of Judaism, make good, happy, strong, you know, productive people. And we want to see that continue. It's not a radical shift, right? It's not this like amazing difference, but it really makes a difference when you refocus the vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I would like say that it might not appear so new or radical when I say it like that, but at its core, it does actually undercut some of the underpinnings of what it traditionally meant to be Jewishly educated in the past. For example, if we were saying that you needed to learn how to pray in a certain way so that we could perpetuate the way the prayer is done in a particular synagogue, which is by and large what religious instruction was designed to do. We'd teach you how to pray in a specific nusach so you could do what we always did. Now we're saying, hang on a second, what's most important is to equip young people with the tools and capacities they need to grapple with their own spiritual journey. Now what happens now if that kid can't pray the same way as their parent or grandparents prayed? Well, you know what, they weren't doing that because we told them to anyway. It's a very different prayer. And now you get into a whole different conversation about what disruptive innovation can begin to look like. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're actually saying here is that the new Jewish education that we're offering can actually be disruptive to what was once offered. And the secret behind disruptive innovation, which some of your previous guests have also spoken about in different ways, is that disruptive innovation is primarily disruptive because it upsets the status quo. And the status quo is in existence because a whole lot of people like the status quo. Right. <laughs> so if, if it's disrupting something, it means people, often with power or tradition or something behind them, are going to lose some of that power. That's when it becomes actually quite a difficult conversation. And what might have seemed to you initially as not being so dramatic or radical, well, when we're no longer doing things the way our parents and grandparents did, that becomes quite radical in the eyes of other people. So now, it becomes a bit more tense and a bit more complicated. But really great lessons. Really good things to be thinking about. So when you think about the field of Jewish education, and as I mentioned at the top of the program, it's such a huge part of Jewish life and the organized Jewish community. Just to mention, obviously, a few, you know, day schools, early childhood centers, supplemental religious schools and synagogues, not to mention programming for kids and families in synagogues, Hillel's, youth groups, camps is such a huge part of the work that we do. And thinking of all these different areas, I guess a little bit of like, you know, where is your focus? Like, where are things awesome? And they've got their own infrastructure, and they're doing really great. And where is it that you're like, gosh, we really got to help get this moving a little bit in the better direction? It's a fascinating question, because like, so much has changed that's made the answer to this question really complicated. And I'll try and just break it down as quickly as I can that in the area of teen engagement, for example, it used to be said that the things that work, no matter what your definition of work were, like going to Jewish day school would work, going to three or four consecutive summers of Jewish summer camp would work, being an active leader in a youth group would work. Going on an Israel trip would work. Would work as in building a positive Jewish identity? Yeah, so it didn't really matter what you put in there for work as right. your definition, okay. but it seemed to satisfy everybody. Now, in the 1990s, that directly correlated with the tension of the day was, would it ultimately lead to more people marrying other Jews right. and the whole Jewish continuity debate? So as we've gradually moved away from that being the real marker of Jewish affiliation and engagement, it's become a bit of a different question. And I think that's the other thing which has come into play now is that there is a difference between Jewish education and Jewish engagement. And not to understand that there's a difference is, I think, a real flaw in the system. And what's happened in the last few years is those things have been conflated. 
and to try and break it down as simply as I can. So learning is something that takes place all the time. Every moment in your life is full of a learning moment. As long as you reflect upon it, you can also be educated by that learning moment. Education is a system, often with a curriculum or an educator in charge or a, a building or a system, but it's a system. And then you have experiences which engage you, which might be more light touch or they might lead to greater educational experiences, but they're not the same. Over the last few decades, the Jewish community has conflated those two things. And I think that's fine that we've done so, but not to understand the difference is important. So I can't compare Jewish day school, the impact of a Jewish day school to the impact of birthright Israel. They were set up for totally different populations with totally different outcomes. And then to ask the question of what needs most attention, I've got to ask, what are you actually trying to achieve and who are you trying to achieve it for? It's no doubt that if you want to raise Jewishly literate children in traditional Jewish literacy, or not so traditional, but relevant Jewish literacy, then a Jewish day school provides the most number of content hours and dosage in which you can actually become more literate. That being said, those kids that go to Jewish summer camp also become very literate, perhaps not in the same amount of curriculum, but in the curriculum that can be very, very specific and very energizing and very relevant for a kid involved in that experience as well. A lot of it depends on the quality of the educators, which is really, really an essential piece to all of this. But I think the question is not so much what's doing really, really well, but it needs to be narrowed down as to who you're trying to engage and then what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve for that population. I would just say one thing about the engagement thing, which is pretty important for me at least, and that is like the question used to be, or for many people it still is, How can we engage more Jews today? Or what will it take to engage more Jews? Or the millennials are- That is absolutely still the question. (laughs) It's like, okay, so let's get one thing straight. There are a few exceptions. I don't want to talk about hermits living in caves or anything like that. But most people in the world are engaged human beings. They're engaged doing a lot of things. In fact, this is probably the busiest generation or time in history of all time. So they're very, very engaged. So what does that mean? It actually means that when a Jewish organization says, we want to engage people, that's not what they're saying. They're actually saying, why aren't more people engaged in the things that we're putting out there that we think they ought to be engaged in? And that's a very different question because that means that now someone is choosing something which they value more than what you're offering them. So, you know, it's not a matter of more advertising or cheaper fares, although those things can often help. It's what's the value proposition that you're making someone say, you know what? I want to do activity X, which is going to add more value to my life than activity Y. And if X is offered by a Jewish organization, I'll take it. If Y is offered by a non-Jewish organization, I'll take it. Look, it does lead my detractors to say, what's so unique about the Jewish piece of all this? I just say, you know what? Jews are really proud of their heritage today. It's not like they're running away. Like the biggest surprise for me from the Pew study was 93% of Jews are proud. Proud in what? I'm not sure. But pride means they would do things Jewish if we put things on offer and value for them. And I think in some ways, Jewish education needs to accept that we are now operating in a country of multiple choice, where people choose things because they value them. And what are we doing? And, you know, as someone involved in Jewish education, I have control over that. I don't have control over other things in this world. But what we offer, that's, that's in our house to control. So that's where we spend a lot of our time focused on that work. Yeah, and I think we're shifting, hopefully some organizations are shifting into less of a programmatic model where we're offering this thing. Wouldn't you love to come and do this thing? 
And what I love about, you know, the organization that you work for is the element of research. And I don't know if that was something that you did prior to kind of your shift, but asking them, like, what do you want? What is a meaningful experience to you? And doing, you know, listening to your people, listening to your target audience, and then crafting something that you know that they want, that they would connect with instead of saying, us four people who all have master's degrees in Jewish education really think you would like this. I mean, and that's why you have with youth group board, right? It's the kids that are sitting around the table saying, we want to do this program. And, you know, we've asked our peers and they really are excited about this thing. What you're raising is a really important question, not just for education, but also for Jewish leaders in general. We spend a lot of time doing market research, trying to find out what our people want or what they think they need. And I say that deliberately what they think they need, because in general, people don't really know what's out there if they haven't experienced it for themselves. So it's hard to articulate your needs. It's the whole iPod theory. People didn't know they wanted iPods before Steve Jobs dangled them in front of their eyes, except it's a bit more than that, because we are not here as an agency. And I would say as an organized Jewish community, whatever that means, to give people what they want or what they think they want. At that level, people have very base needs in life, and we would be providing them with some of their basic needs. Jewish education or Jewish experiences need to understand where people are at, but also need to understand where you want them to go and reach some sort of middle ground. It's no use just telling them what they ought to know. They will walk away from you. In a world that we live in today, dogma will just not succeed. But you need to have some sort of vision or some sort of ideology. Otherwise, you're just asking people to do things for the sake of doing them. But I do agree we do need what I call a greater empathy for where our people are at, just to understand their mindset, but not to give up on what it is that we want them to know. Whether you call that Torah or Jewish literacy or whatever variation of Jewish expression, you do need to have that middle ground because I think that it's too easy to fall into the trap of just giving people what they want. You know, in the teen space, it's very, very easy for me to just to give the kids lots of pizza. And what we in our research is they will come once for pizza and they will probably come twice for pizza. Mm. And the third time, you will find out pretty quickly that someone else will be offering them better pizza. You better make sure there's something also of value. So it's pizza and something which keeps them going back. But that pizza just, by the way, is a proxy. Eating pizza is a proxy for friendship, for a safe space, for relationship, for all of those things. No person that I know will turn up to any Jewish program or institution unless they are made to feel welcome there, have a connection with somebody. That's now the basis of 21st century engagement as well. And this is not a cookie cutter industry if it ever was. Now we really need to pay attention to the personal needs as well as the collective needs of the people. And that's not easy to do. I was running a synagogue out in LA and they let go of their religious school director. So then I was in facto their religious school director. And, you know, when you have is a small community of 80 families and when you have a class of six kids and one of them is a boy and the boy says, I don't want to come back. It's a class full of girls. You know, you kind of have these factors that are out of your control when it comes to those relationship dynamics and what you're able to offer and how you do that work that makes it a little more difficult. That's 100% true. And the reality on the ground is really, really important. I would say, and this is where I get myself into a bit of trouble. I care about people. And if an institution goes out of business because it cannot get enough people to turn up or it needs to merge with another organization in order to make its product more viable, 
I know that a lot of people with stake in the ground in that institutional tradition are going to be really upset. But if our core unit of interest are the human beings involved, then I do think we're going to see less of the same type of Jewish institutions. I think synagogues and Hebrew schools and day schools are going to merge because they were built in a time, in a decade, when the Jews were proliferating in certain areas of the country and under the same sort of idea of what it meant to be Jewish. Well, all that's just changed. Jews live in different places and what they're experiencing, wanting out of Jewish life is very different as well. So I know for that one kid, the one boy with five girls, it's you know not looking so great. But if there's a synagogue half mile down the road, which has another group, then you know, let's think on behalf of the Jewish people, what's going to be the better scenario. I know your specific example might not be that, but I do think that we need to accept that with change and innovation, there is going to be a certain amount of loss. And loss is a really emotional quality, which is hard to reconcile with. But I do think, I really do think this, when the history of the Jewish people right now is written, whether it's 10 years or 20 years or 100 years, we're going to be looking at a time in American Jewry that is revolutionary. There are things taking place now which are so dramatic. The forces at play are so big that the community just will look very, very different. And it's on us if we don't act accordingly. And that's why I studied Jewish teenagers, by the way, not just because they're a really exciting, interesting, inspiring population to actually research. But if you understand teenagers today, you understand that where they are today, they're not growing out of it. They're not all of a sudden going to grow up and become more conservative or whatever it is in their attitudes to life. No, these are the values they're carrying through. So understanding teenagers today gives us a really good insight into the Jewish community of not only today, but tomorrow as well. So that's part of how I got into this whole business of understanding sociological trends in order to build Jewish communities of today and tomorrow. And as we've explored on this program, some of the differences between our legacy institutions that were set up so very long ago, and you know, I'm exploring a lot this year with organizations that have started in the last 15 years. I mean, 15 years is not that long. And just the ginormous difference in innovation and engagement and the way that those organizations look at their population versus the way that legacy organizations do. And not saying one is better than the other of how they do their work, but that's going to continue, right? That's just 15 years, right? In another 15 years, there's going to be more and there's going to be different and there's going to be change. And that's kind of an important thing to kind of be thinking about as professionals, right? What is that change? Where is it? How are we engaging with it? Well, that's one scenario. Another scenario that I'm really in favor of is a lot of younger adults started up these startup organizations with a lot of energy at times in their lives when they could afford to do so. And gradually, right. <laughs> um, getting a bit older, right? Yeah. Other things become really important to them. Some of them might be having families of their own. Some of them might want more job security. Some of them don't want to be going from funder to funder looking for their next paycheck or their next mortgage payment or rental payment, probably more so. So for me, working in this system, I say, that's fantastic. The job of the legacy organization should be, well, how do I offer that person a chance to carry on their dream Mm -hmm. in a more established organization with a greater infrastructure to allow that to be realized? And for me, that's the real opportune moment that we stand in right now is not looking at these two as dichotomous parts of the Jewish world today, but what's the seamless integration? of these two populations and these ideas like we will only be successful as the Jewish education project if we remain relevant and cutting edge and bringing on new thinking all the time that's our task as an organization of roughly you know 60 people how do we continue to refresh ourselves and make sure that we don't become an ivory tower we're not a think tank that we make sure that we're in touch with the people and the educators in the field you've been listening to it's who you know the podcast I'm your host Michelle W Malkin
Before returning to my conversation with David, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Dana Levinson-Steiner serves as the Senior Associate of Leadership and Strategic Partnerships at the Brofman Center for Jewish Student Life at NYU and is the founder of Chutzpah Nitz, From Campus to the C-Suite. She discusses with me her work in bolstering women's skills in the workplace to be confident in the pursuit of their career goals. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. And I think the interesting piece is we're in this really collective moment right now in 2018 where there's this confluence of conversations happening about gender equity, whether it's because of the rise of the Me Too movement that has really shown a light on some of these really awful things that are happening across industries, but also because of the political discourse over the last 18 months that has really demonstrated this huge lack of gender parity. And it's just the perfect time to sort of initiate these conversations and to really sustain them. And particularly in our field, which in and of itself has gender challenges. I mean, I think while there's so much of Judaism that really supports gender equity and gender equality, there's a lot of Judaism that really doesn't. There's a lot of Judaism that really highlights gender essentialism that says this is what women do and this is what men do and that's immutable. And I think that's hard for many folks who are really trying to get to the next level in their professional career, in their personal career, in clergy, in Jewish communal space, in education. It's really hard. Be sure to listen to my conversation with Dana in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to David. So let's kind of dive a little more into that and thinking about the work that you do specifically for professionals in the field in these various areas. I know you have a lot of different programs as far as training and networking and connecting. And that's so very important to be able to share your experiences with other people that are going through it. But I'm curious, what's the feedback that you're receiving within your research or these networks? Where are their successes and where are their struggles? And I'm assuming that informs how you build your conferences or your webinars or the offerings and ways that you go about your work and kind of getting that feedback of where people are struggling or succeeding. It's such a big question. I'll try and break it down to make it as relevant for the most number of people that we can in terms of saying that we're not a membership organization. We don't have people that we can call upon to turn up. And I think if we started doing that, we'd actually fall apart. All of our success is based on relationships and the success of the preceding event. And we go by reputation. So I would say the bulk of our people on the ground, our educational professionals, spend upwards of 50% of their time just developing and cultivating relationships with people. So that's a really important piece. And I think that's across the board of anybody I'd be recommending into any of the education engagement space, that that's really important. The second piece that we work on really hard, but don't do as well as we probably could, is that of networking. And what we mean by networking is basically saying that, yes, it's true that people need networks of support and trust where they can share ideas, but they can actually get that anywhere. What we actually want to try and do is, and what's really meant in the term of network weaving and bringing together these networks of actually how do we begin to galvanize people to move the field ahead. So if we can get together a group of people that we have pre-existing relationships with to move ahead the field of early childhood education or Israel education or teen engagement, It's those networks which really begin to proliferate new thinking and new ideas. We can't possibly have a one-on-one relationship with everybody in the field. We do believe that creating a network or a productive network can begin to lead to a change of momentum, a movement change, 
changing the field if we work in the right direction. That's very, very difficult to do. Most people work primarily for the single institution that they're employed to work for. Mm -hmm. And therefore, giving of themselves for the greater good or the greater Jewish people is a very tall order and a very tall ask. But when we get to it, most people, and the more experienced you get, the more easier it is to do, are really grateful for the opportunity to be able to give back and help move the field, move forward. I would say that one of the biggest debates we have internally is what's the value of professional development. We run lots of webinars and lots of one-shot deal workshops. Some of them are really, really successful, but at the end of the day, have they actually changed anybody's practice? And we oscillate on that. Sometimes we hit it out of the park and it's like, you know, you really see people change. It's usually when we have a single core idea or reflect on a single experience and get really narrow. Our most successful professional development experiences are year-long fellowships involving immersive experiences, cohort building and ongoing coaching. And Go figure, I just outlined the most expensive form of investment possible in individuals, but we know it works. And the more opportunities we have to offer people those type of experiences, we know that people come out of those changed. You mentioned in my bio that I was a recipient of the Wexner Graduate Fellowship. I was also really fortunate enough recently to be a part of the Schusterman Fellowship as well. And I think I learned a lot from those experiences, how the investment in individuals can really make an impact and how grateful I am for those experiences. I do know from prior podcasts that you've spoken about, like, what does it mean for a Jewish community to be investing in certain individuals so much and what happens to everybody else? And I totally agree with you. I think we do need to be able to invest and involve more people in these professional development opportunities. And all I can say on a personal note is like how grateful I am for those institutions that trusted in me to be able to carry forth their mission and my mission. And I just hope that somehow I'm able to pay back just a part of what they gave to me. That is a really expensive proposition. The fourth area that we do, by the way, is really interesting as well. I'm still a bit of an ideologue in this regard, but I actually still believe that ideas can change the world. You know, I've watched a TED talk every now and then. I've come out of it saying, wow, my view has changed completely on that. And I do believe that ideas can change the way we do Jewish education or Jewish engagement or involve Jews in the world today. And we hold an annual Jewish Futures Conference where we really try and promote the promulgation of new ideas and new thinking and generative ideas to give them problems and hopefully come up with some great solutions. But ideas, I think, is one area of the Jewish world which we don't invest enough in. There aren't so many people that are paid to be thought leaders or deep thinkers. Maybe they exist in the academy, but we want to have that translation. But I really do believe that if I was to try and focus on an area of work today, it would be how do we make sure that the Jewish community is not just asking themselves the same questions all the time, but how are we really pushing ourselves forward with new ideas, new thinking, new research, new knowledge? Because I do think ultimately that in today's world, that knowledge is real power or access to knowledge is real power. And how we capitalize that, I think, is a real challenge for us right now. Well, I think it is your mention, and as I've spoken to previous guess about when we invest in our employees, you know, every time we bring in somebody new, they're going to change our organization. Every time you invest in somebody to go to a conference or to go to a webinar or something, you have to be ready for what they're going to bring back. And I think there's nothing more defeating than going to an exciting conference or being a part of a cohort and just getting all these cool ideas and going back to your organization or where you work. I'm like, ah, this is not going to work here. Or I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll table it for now, maybe this thing. And then it's, you know, nothing moves forward. It's really interesting. 
one of our most effective forms of professional development now is a model that we've applied actually in early childhood engagement, congregational learning and Israel education is that the core person going through that development might go through the whole experience, whether it's a whole fellowship or a whole coaching model, whatever it might be. But on day one and on day 10 and something in between, they need to bring what we call a champion from their organization to the table. So mm. it might be the senior executive or a senior lay person or whoever it might be so that they can buy into the framework of that experience as well. So that the person who's going through it is not like left exactly how you are swimming and trying to say, I got this really great idea. No one's listening to me. That the person from day one has the support of someone from their organization. And that's been tremendously successful in helping with what you just spoke about. I'm curious because in looking at your website, a lot of the things it seems like when it comes to your networking and your fellowship things are very localized to the you know New York City metropolitan area. And I'm curious if there's thinking of kind of bringing these offerings more online, doing you know small group networking regularly or anything like that to kind of be able to further bring other resources and stuff that you're doing to a larger audience throughout North America or however, Israel, however you, you see your audience of Jewish educators, because I just feel like there's such great resources. And again, when I look at your website, I'm like, oh, it's so local, but, you know, and we have a lot of great technology, you know, we're on Zoom right now to really start to branch out and offer that to more people. So it's almost like you're peeling back the curtain on our organization. So look, it's no secret really that the Board of Jewish Education, the Jewish Education Project was set up and funded by UJA Federation of New York to service the New York population. And that's primarily our core function and responsibility. And yet New York Federation and ourselves have acknowledged that New York is one of those communities that has resources that can spread to other communities. And with technology, it makes it even more able to do so. And we do do a lot of that sort of stuff at the moment. We are trying to invest heavily in our educational technology and how we actually disseminate more things you know, through digital means. But I'd also do want to mention that over time, while maintaining our core support and work in New York, we now do have several projects that run on a national basis in other communities and on a national front. The biggest one being the teen initiative that we're doing and the large research that we've been doing in the teen space for many years now supported by the Jim Joseph Foundation and other foundations. And we're seriously in conversation now about what it would take to actually expand the agency to maintaining its New York focus, but having a footprint nationally. You know, the funding world has changed in the Jewish community as well. And now that you have more family and national foundations on the scene, these discussions become possible. I would stress that like, you know, we're never going to neglect and we're always going to double down on our work in New York, but the world's changing. And I think the more we can consider this is important for us to do. We had a webinar last week, 450 people registered for the webinar, which is very a large size for us. And they represented 19 states mm-hmm. in the country and a couple of people from overseas as well. So geography knows no boundaries anymore. So right. it's all up for discussion at the moment. Well, and Jewish education knows no boundaries, right? If it's something that you've been able to help in your local area really move forward, you know, to be able to share that and disseminate that as widely as possible to the West Coast. North and South and really saying, you know, we've got some very wonderful resources and things to help you move forward. Yeah, that being said, we shouldn't like kid ourselves. We can put as many great things on a website as possible. Curriculum banks, you know, had their day. They're not so popular. It's actually now about us pushing stuff out. And you know what? Nothing is actually going to substitute a person on the ground actually taking someone through these resources and coaching them to use it. So I do think we live in a blended world when it comes to some of this technology. And 
definitely we can upgrade our resources and our dissemination. But if we did so at the neglect of the person one-to-one contact, I think would be a mistake for us to fall into that hole as well. Well, it seems like since you mentioned curriculum guides, my my background is just in religious school as far as being a teacher for several years in college and a little bit beyond. My experience was, you know, you show up and you're given a calendar and you're given the books and you're, you know, told like this week you're focusing on this and this week you're focusing on that. And then there's this thing and it's very kind of structured in the way that you are given to teach. And it seems like a little bit about the shift is less here is everything, just do it. And a little more empowering that teacher to think a little more creatively and a little more experientially and a little more holistically about, you know, not just here's the book, here's the schedule, like here's the vision, here's the outcome, you know, here's where a kid is starting and here's where we're hoping a kid ends at the end of the year, you know, please let us know, right? Here are some resources and here are some things to look at. What are some interesting things you want to do in the classroom? to get from point A to point B instead of saying, here's your curriculum pack, you know, here's the calendar of how to do it. Go do these six lessons and magically you'll get, you know, to point B. Yeah, well, I think what you've just described is just bad education, right? So if we're serious about education, and by the way, this is the biggest hole in all of the arguments that I've put forward so far is that who are the people in the field who are actually going to implement any of this? And if we undervalue, underpay and overwork really underqualified people to do this holy work, then you're going to get the results you deserve. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, communities and organizations need to ask themselves, are we serious or not serious about this type of work? And if they're serious, a whole lot of these things have to change. And, you know, someone just pulling off the internet two hours before class, what someone else sees as a good resource is just not good educational practice. But have we as a community invested enough in training enough qualified people to teach in our Hebrew schools and our early childhood centers and be our youth group advisors and even our day school educators or our summer camp Mm -hmm. counselors? We've made huge leaps and bounds in that area, but not enough. And I think it's a real question. I mean, we're asking ourselves now an example that in the early childhood centers in which we work, we're estimating that about 60 to 70% of those early childhood directors are going to be retiring in the next five to 10 years. Right. Now, where are the replacements for that really important population going to come from? And we have to ask ourselves, is early Jewish childhood education something that we really value or not? And if it's not, then those jobs can go to whomever applies. If we really value it, then we've got to look seriously at how are we cultivating the next generation of those directors to come through? And you could put that across the board in terms of all Jewish education. It's too much just to offer scholarships and fellowships for people to participate in programs. If there's no one running them and leading them, then you know it's a bit all in vain, but that's the next big challenge for us. It's very interesting to me. It feels like there were you know a number of years where we kind of forgot about that. <laughs> now we're you know, Jewish education and our larger Jewish community now we're being faced with a reality and be like, oh yeah, like <laughs> these people aren't going to be around forever. And, you know, we need to make sure we're bringing people up into the ability to do those jobs well with the new thinking of this age. Yeah, it's important to see that there is a bit of a cycle or at least some sort of like pendulum going on here is that Jewish education is focused on different populations for different periods of time and then moved on to the next population relatively quickly. So early childhood used to be popular and then it went to family engagement and then we were focusing on adult learning and then day schools became really important and then there was a big influx a decade or so ago in Jewish camping and now the teen space is receiving a lot of market attention. We tend to follow trends and then lose sight of the fact that we're in this for the long run. 
And that's the hardest part I think of my job is like, I can wake up some mornings and say, oh, have I really made a difference today? Or, you know, I've just been through eight meetings and gone through so many emails. What difference, what impact have I really made? To recognize that this type of work means you have to be in it for the long haul. For someone who's so impatient like myself, like that can be the humbling part of all of this. But having benchmarks which set you up for long-term success is just, it's a vital importance because these issues aren't going to be solved overnight. And Mm -hmm. that's part of the big challenge as well. Great. So thinking about Jewish professionals, and we can focus who are in Jewish education, since that's your area, I won't ask you to speak to everybody. But what advice would you give somebody in the field other than kind of the things we've touched upon that might have a, you know, really terrible boss or really hard year of kids or programs that just aren't really going anywhere or are being successful, you know, whatever advice that you might have for those in the field. (sighs) There's so much advice I'd like to give and so little advice that I want to give because every person requires such individual nuance in how they develop their capacities. And I think that's probably piece number one. I mean, you know, in Jewish tradition, there's a saying, find for yourself a teacher and you'll find for yourself a friend. And I think for those involved in Jewish education, developing for yourself a mentor relationship with somebody is of critical, critical importance. And that should not be your boss and that should not be your supervisor, but somebody who is willing to take the time and invest in you as a human being and as a professional, there is nothing more valuable than that. For me, this has become a very important issue in my life right now. My mentor, one of my mentors passed away last year, Jonathan Wucher of Blessed Memory, who was somebody who just like, he was there for me and he was there to talk about and answer my questions and to go through these struggles and give me a pat on the back or to give me some words of advice. And I do think everybody needs to find for themselves a mentor. I would flip that and say, when you reach a certain point in your career, then you owe it to others to become a mentor yourself. Mm-hmm. And I do think a lot of people forget that part of the equation. And yes, work is always busy and deadlines always need to be met. But carving out time for yourself to actually mentor others is also of critical importance. The second thing that I would say is that Jews are a really small part of the overall population. And to think that we have all of the answers inside the Jewish community is a bit of a folly. And I got to the point with some of my staff when I said, I want you to engage in professional development experiences, and I want you to do them outside of the Jewish community. I want you deliberately to go to a conference in an adjacent field You can do the Jewish translation, but you go there and learn what you can and bring it back to us. So the second thing I would say is like, don't be so internal in your thinking and try and find your answers from wherever they might appear. If you look at my bookshelf now, there's a good section on Jewish studies and Judaics and Jewish education, but there's a whole lot in there from the business world and the psychology world and the behavioral economics world. That's where we're talking a lot of our our new approaches to Jewish Mm -hmm. education. I think the third thing that I'd say is In organizations, if you're not getting along with somebody or your boss is doing whatever you don't want them to be doing, the one thing I've learned, and you know, I'm not the easiest person always to get along with, is that people are really good at heart. And what I mean by that is that even if somebody makes a bad decision or wakes up cranky or is doing something that you don't particularly like, giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're in this for the right reasons and that they are really trying to do the best that they can and that they might need a bit of your support in helping them see things differently. Just assuming the worst in people, I don't think makes any sense. This is not a profession that people come to 
for ulterior motives to they're going to make a fortune in Jewish education. Right. So let's assume they all want to you know make the world a better place. And so just giving people that benefit of the doubt, and no matter what level they are in an organization, I actually think is a really important piece that we can all take heed of. Yeah, and taking that breathing room from you know situations to be reflective before responding, <laughs> I think is well, uh, is always good. I mean, I've learned the hard way. Yeah, never yeah. send an angry email at night. Like, always put in the draft box and then, like, wake up the next morning and ask yourself, is it really worth sending? And nine out of ten times I've changed, if not the language, then deleted the whole email. So just right. breathe is really important. Great. So other than breathing, how do you how do you keep it all together? I mean, you've been in this organization for a number of years and many different roles. You have children. I'm not sure how many. But, you know, I'm assuming a social life outside of your work as well. So, no, not at all. <laughs> um, so how do you keep it all together? What strategies do you use to stay sane? You know, this whole notion of a work-life balance, I've thrown that out the window a long time ago. You know, I've been given the blessing to do this work and I'm going to do what it takes to actually do this work. That being said, like my family time is my family time and like my weekends as much as possible are sacred times where the phone goes away not always effectively as I wanted to, but when I'm, you know, playing soccer with the kids, two of them, thank you. That's our time together. And I'm not very good at it, but I need to become better at it because that's really precious time to remain a sane in your work and really remember what's truly important to you. The second thing which I do, which is sort of funny how I got into it, is I started running. The reason I started running actually was because I was spending a summer at summer camp doing my research and there was not a gym at the summer camp. Go figure. I figured what's the easiest way for me to maintain some sort of fitness at summer camp. So I started jogging and jogging became not an obsession, but to the point where I now run marathons. Well, I like to say I finish marathons. The reason I like marathons is I actually don't like the marathon itself or the crowd of the marathon. I just enjoy the training and I enjoy the training because it's time to be by myself and to breathe and to reflect and to think and to take my mind off things or to think about things that I otherwise wouldn't. And that being said, I think some of my best ideas about Jewish education have come while running or while being in a spin class or whatever it might be, is when I can clear my mind of everything, that's when the ideas pop in. So that's really become important to me, that physical exercise, but I think it's a mental exercise as much as possible as well. Me time is something that's not always easy to find the time for, believe it or not. But it's also, you know, you can't grab a piece of paper, you can't send that email, you can't shoot off that idea, right? It's just something you have to process while you're going through it. So that's really great. You know, I've also got this added part to my biography, which I don't think is so unusual for Jewish educators, is that many of us have lived in different communities around the world. And the friendships that you develop in different parts of your life all mean something very different. My friends from Australia that I grew up with hold a really special place in my life. And the friends that I've gathered along the way it's a very different quality of friendship, but it's all meaningful and putting it into perspective as who you go to for what and what role they play in your lives is part of the journey as well. Great. So we've covered a lot of ground, both within your work and kind of the future of the field and, and some goods and bads. Are there any other kind of lingering thoughts that you have in what we've talked about? Well, I would like to say, and this is related to the last piece about friendships and colleagues and the work that we all do, is that this past week, I and many others who knew her lost a good friend and a good colleague, Naomi Friedman Rabkin, who lived in San Diego, was part of the Leash Tag Foundation team there. And, 
Naomi was someone who brought a smile and an energy to almost every Jewish conference. And if you read the eulogies and the accolades coming her way, the obituaries, it's tragic someone at the age of 43 passing away with the legacy that she left on everyone who knew her. It's inspiring. It's something that I'm taking with me at the moment and wishing blessings to her family. But in some ways, when I was preparing for this podcast, trying to channel some of Naomi's energy and being able to at least say that I can dedicate part of this, this podcast and this work that I'm doing to Naomi's honor, to Michael, the family, to keep strong in these times is really important. And just to take this moment of personal reflection and to share with your listeners, we lost a good one in the last week. And Naomi is someone that really inspired me to do a lot of the work that I'm doing. I know it's not the most uplifting note to leave on, but I think responding and respecting those friends and those colleagues that have made such an impact is possibly the legacy that we all leave behind. And if we all paid more attention to those sorts of questions, what's the real change, the real legacy that you want to leave behind in this world? Not necessarily being cut down young, but like overall, the world would be a better place in so many, so many ways. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing, David. And thank you so much for your time on the program, sharing your experiences and best of luck. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for including me in such a really interesting group of people you've had on this podcast. I should say, and this would be like a bit ridiculous if I didn't say it, is that sometimes on those really long runs, I do put on your podcast and listen to some of your guests speak. And it's often a refreshing way to get new ideas into my head by hearing some of your guests um, share their thoughts as well. So you do accompany on many of those long journeys as well. So thank you for all the great work that you're doing. And it's really appreciated. Yeah, it's interesting and awesome people like you that I get the pleasure to talk to that provide that wonderful insight. So I'm just the vehicle of which to provide those insights. So, so happy to do so. Thank you so much, David. The one word that comes to mind when I reflect on my conversation with David is reframing. At several points in our conversation, he helps us to reframe our thinking around our work. David found a professional home where he could grow in his responsibilities and influence over the eight years he's been at the Jewish Education Project. This is an interesting reframing of a career, encouraging growth and change in the portfolios of the people in your organization to help them move up your career ladder so they don't have to move out to move up and can continue to have engaging and interesting work in the field they have a passion for. David highlights that the question around why people are not engaging in Jewish life needs to be reframed. Is Jewish life meeting the needs of the Jewish people? Are we asking and answering the right questions when we consider the challenges and pitfalls of our work? When you ask why people aren't engaging more in what your organization is offering, try thinking about the value proposition your organization has to offer. If we offer value, there are people out there eager to engage in that value, especially when it speaks to their Jewish identity. The last point that struck me was in thinking about change. David talks a lot about the transformation his organization underwent in becoming the Jewish Education Project and meeting the needs of their constituents. In this process, it's difficult not to blame ourselves for the things that aren't working. David helps us to reframe this thinking more about the successes the organization has had and that change is an effort to build on that success, not to tear down the efforts of current or previous leadership. There will inevitably be some loss in this process. And being okay with the shedding of what might have worked in the past to make room for what works today or in the future will only make your organization stronger. 
This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website. It's who you know, the podcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Thank you.